they don't want to block. So, uh, anyways, well, welcome uh, back, everyone. Welcome as everyone is watching uh, today online. This is the last in the sermon series I'm doing on uh, finding our identity in Christ. And, you know, I hope through all these uh, last six weeks that you've been able to discover a little bit more of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, uh, to have Christ follower or Jesus lover or Christian be a part of your identity, a part of how you see yourself. Uh, because when you were baptized, you didn't just join a club. You didn't uh, sign up for stuff to do. I know it sometimes feels like it that way. That's sometimes how we talk about it, right? We'll often say we're going to church rather than I am the church. But when you were baptized, you became a part of the church. And, uh, and I hope that I've been able to kind of flesh that out a little bit better. So when you look in the mirror, you see someone who is the church. Um, and, you know, in, in that you are, see yourself as a part of the church, you know, in a way that's more than just what you do, but sort of like what you had a family, right? Remember, your family, it is who you are. And for better or worse, you don't always agree, but you belong. And, um, you know, you can't just be a part of someone else's family. I mean, you could crash their reunion, I suppose. Um, they can choose to let you, they can choose to make you a part, they can adopt you, but the idea is that, that a family is who you are, it's not just something you show up to. And so today we're getting down to that part that I usually get to last, uh, where we get to talk about our, our bodies and how we use them as people who belong to Jesus and Jesus' family. Because what well, we need to, uh, as much as this is often everyone's, well, for some preachers it's their favorite topic, um, but it comes down to how we see ourselves. That our bodies are ourselves, and it says that our bodies are members of the body of Christ. It is who we are. So what do we do with that? Well, the question is as old as Christianity is, you know? And they would say to Paul, now that I've become a follower of Jesus, um, do I have to change my personal life, my habits, uh, marriage and family? Do I have to change these kind of things? Um, and the answer usually was yes. So let's look at, uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, this will be our verse for today. It says, starting at verse 18, Paul writes, Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or how do you know that your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not of your own? Now, this is a verse that's quoted a lot. Um, I got involved in a, I, I stupidly got into an online uh, debate with anti-vaxxers who argued that Christians could not take the vaccine uh, because it's forbidden by the Bible. And I said, I kind of know the Bible. I don't see that verse in there. And they said, well, who are you to tell me what my religion believes? And I said, I'm a pastor. I know what I'm talking about. This is my job. And to which I was then called the Antichrist. I was said, I clearly don't know God. I'm a false prophet. Um, and, I mean, the names, the names that these loving Christians called me, um, and, and I said, there is no verse that says, don't take a vaccine. And they said, your body is a holy temple. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what Paul was thinking. He's going, you know, there's going to be in 1,900 and 
20 years, a guy named Jonas Salk will appear. I better put a lid on that now. Come on. So needless to say, I got the vaccine, and I want encourage you all to do it, and I, I will swear that there is no Bible verse that prohibits a vaccine. But anyways, this is that holy temple verse, and it gets quoted with that, I, and I've heard it quoted on all sorts of things, right? Usually it's in sexuality discussions. But this, these, these two verses you get here give a little bit of context. They come at the end of a long section about prostitution and whether Christians should hire prostitutes. Now, you know that rule? There's a rule of thumb about rules. They only bother making rules about things that they perceive as a problem, right? You know, we, we don't make a, a law. Like, for example, I don't have to sit here and make a church policy saying, don't play with rattlesnakes, right? Because the, you, you, you will suffer the consequence of that yourself quite quickly. I don't have a huge problem with people running in going, hey, pastor, can I use these rattlesnakes at the children's sermon today? I know there are churches in certain parts of America where they would do that. That is not our denomination. It's not a problem. We don't make a rule against it, right? I don't make a rule against, you know, we can only have one person volunteering for coffee hour every Sunday. We can't have 10 people. So you only make rules for things that you think are problems. So all I can figure from reading 1 Corinthians is, in Paul's church, this was a problem. It got a big, fat, long paragraph debate about it. And um, uh, from what we know of ancient Greece, Roman culture at the time, is Paul was probably right, that this probably was a big thing in his church. So what do we know? We know from back then, it, say if you went back to Corinth, uh, that if you were a man of means, if you had money, you were probably not monogamous. That would have been incredibly rare. Um, it would have been totally normal for you to have had this kind of complicated relationship where you would have had a wife, and the wife would have been home, and she would have had the kids, and those kids were, these, those were the legitimate heirs to your fortune. And the wife you got through an arrangement, probably, with her family, between your parents' family and family, it was, an, it was an arrangement for property transfer. That would have been your wife. But if you had money, you didn't stop there. That, that was just weird. Who, who, who has just one, who just has his wife? They couldn't, they couldn't comprehend that. So you would have had on the side, if you had enough money, you would have had concubines. Boy, what an awkward word. But you, you would have had concubines. What's that? They're like a half-wife. So it's, it's a legal arrangement, but the kids don't get inheritance. And they don't have the same rights to divorce. So you can basically dump a concubine anytime you want. And uh, it, this was actually a pretty common thing. Um, St. Augustine, the famous Christian theologian, he, would, he had a concubine. He wouldn't marry her. He absolutely wouldn't marry her. He, and, and when he moved to Rome, uh, or Milan, his mom took the concubine from what's now Algeria, got on a boat, floated all the way to Milan to get him to marry her. Now that you're a Christian, you can marry her. And you know what Augustine said? Well, now I'm in service to the Lord. I'm a celibate now. So this practice kept going for a while. So this was what you'd have. You'd have a concubine. And they didn't have as much rights as a wife and you could have as many as you wanted. And the only reason a woman would become a concubine was usually because she didn't come from a social class 
where her family could negotiate a marriage. But it was a way, if you were of a lower class, to get into the household of an upper class man. But it was still a precarious existence. And, um, and it was still based on money. And then, of course, if you were a wealthy man, you could also have all the prostitutes you want, and that was considered perfectly okay in the Greek and Roman world too. And the reason, again, those women went into that was money. Right? You were at the lowest class at that point. And since women didn't have a whole lot of job options, it wasn't like if you were divorced, you could just like, you know, I'm just going to go back to school and get my MBA. There was no doing that. Being a prostitute was a viable way to survive if you were widowed or divorced or disinherited or, or for any reason. So, but it's always, it's always about the money. And the rich man getting as much as he wants for as low of a price as possible. And the woman's status was a function of her worth in cash or her worth to the enjoyment of the man. And that was how it worked. That's the world Paul is stepping into. And so he's sitting there and he's looking at his church, at all these Greeks. They've now decided they're going to be followers of Jesus. You know, they left behind the old gods. They're embracing this new identity and this new community and this new family. And he's looking at this whole system based basically on valuing women on money and what, what, the, what they do, what the man feels like they do for them. And he's looking at it and he's telling his church, it's time to leave that stuff behind. I try to think of a modern parallel to this, and I realize it probably isn't that crazy if you get into the world of big money. You know, you have sort of the cliche of the, the millionaire, billionaire stock trader, right? You know, he's got his wife that he met in college, and she manages the mansion out in the Hamptons, but, you know, in the meanwhile, he's got secretaries and cocktail waitresses on the side, right? You know, and, uh, and then, of course, he goes out on the yachts with his buddies, and they have their parties, and there's all sorts of women there who are paid by the hour or why whatever, right? And then he comes home, and everybody kind of knows that he does it. And you say, why does she put up with it? Because he has money, right? You, you want to you, you divorce him, you, if, you, if you are a prenup, you better say, okay, honey, right? Why do we put up with it? The money, right? And so in many ways, maybe things haven't changed as much. But there's a word for this system that Paul uses. And the word in Greek is porneia. It's where you get a certain other word we might be familiar with. It gets translated, uh, it gets translated in our Bible as fornication, which I think is really kind of an anachronistic thing. You know, we think of fornication as kind of having this premarital, living together kind of meaning. It really didn't mean that in Paul's time. You know, this is a world where people were married at 14, 15, 16. That wasn't a big concern of theirs. But what Paul's coming and what he is suggesting is really quite radical. Pick one woman and stick with that. That's it. Just marry one woman. That's it. And love your wife. That was radical stuff. Greek guys would have gone, love your wife. No, my wife's for the property. I love the, you know, so-and-so over here. They, had a, they divided that in their minds. They compartmentalized. Paul say, no, 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 no. It's goodbye to the system. Just pick one person. Because what you're doing then is, is, is you're trying to get rid of the system that takes advantage of poverty and social class so that you can get what you want without having to make a commitment. That's porneia, what gets translated fornication. 
And again, I wish they wouldn't translate it that way. You know, I remember in college there was a group, I, know, I knew a group of people, they nicknamed themselves the fornicators, like this was a, a badge of honor or something. And I'm like, no. I, I tried to tell them, well, actually, if you look at the Greek, it has a very different meaning than what you're implying. And they're like, Lars, you're a nerd. That's why you're not a fornicator. So, so um, right. Paul says, not to engage in this stuff because your body is not just a tool for gratification. And other people are not tools for your gratification. And your body is something special and it's valuable to be, to be taken care of and treated with respect. It is something holy. It is something that has worth. That's what he's trying to say here. But the teaching in that verse, this holy temple thing, it has a way to go sideways. I don't know if you, any of you experienced this. There's, there's scenarios, I, I've heard about them. I lived through it myself, but I've heard about, you know, and uh, this has happened more and more, so like a youth pastor will come in and they'll have this big youth group. And, and they'll have this food analogy. They'll take like a pear or something. And they'll pass the pear and go, everybody needs to lick the pear. And everyone's kind of grossed out. So it goes around the room and they all lick the pear. And then it gets to the end and go, would you eat that pear? And, and everyone's like, oh, it's icky and gross. Then they'll go, that's you if you, have it, if you sleep around. It's like, oh, dirty, dirty, icky, dirty. And, you know, that's the point, Right? And, uh, and, and so to fill this, I mean, and you think about that, how we think, right? We still use that phraseology, right? We have a joke. Is it a dirty joke or a clean joke? Why, why do we always associate dirtiness with it? And so you, you, hear the, you hear these horror stories, and of course, then the room then gets filled all with fear and, and guilt and shame, and, 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 but of course, you got a room full of teenagers, so what's everybody thinking about? Once you've done this, what's the one and only thing they're going to think about? Oh yeah, exactly the thing you wish they would be not thinking about. And they're going to think about it all day, every day. And then what happens? Well, now you've made it taboo and forbidden, and, and which makes it cool and exciting, right? And, and now it becomes almost a challenge, right? Take an experiment. I, I, I would love to run this experiment. They'd never let me at the school, but I'd love to run this experiment. Get two portable sheds. Two portable sheds. One shed you fill with landscaping supplies. Weed whackers, clippers, trimmers, you know, mowers, all sorts of things. Bladed spinny things, right? That can do all sorts of damage. And you just and you leave it unlocked, and you just write above it. You write landscaping supplies above it. On the other one uh, above it, you write taboo, forbidden, really scary, dangerous, don't go near this shed. Which one's going to get open first? Oh, and you put a big padlock on the forbidden one. You know they're going to sit in the commons all day and they're going to go, what's in that shed? I want to know what's in that shed. How can I get into that shed? And the first person to break the lock and get into that shed is going to be the coolest person in the, on campus, right? Even if all you put in there is, you know, fertilizer or something. That's what happens, right? When we make things taboo, we make it exciting. We obsess about it. When we make it taboo, we make it desirable. So when we use this language of clean and dirty, of purity and impurity, you know, and we're saying that your body, when you say things like your body needs to be as pure and clean as that Jerusalem temple was, young lady, young man, we run the danger of making it exciting and missing the whole point of what Paul's trying to get at here. 
Because then, of course, the danger is they act out and then get overcome with shame and then say, well, I'd rather, instead of being shamed, I'd just forget the church thing. I'll just go have fun. I'll just go join the fornicators, I guess. What we really should be teaching is that we shouldn't be using people as tools for our enjoyment or letting people use us as tools for their enjoyment and being able to say to people, you are worth more. You have a worth, and your worth isn't a marketplace worth. It's an intrinsic worth based on what God gives you. You are a child of God, and as someone named by Jesus, as a part of Jesus' family, you have a value to God. And it isn't measured in dollars and dress sizes. It's just there because God makes it there. And this is getting to the essence of what Paul is saying. Yes, is there a part of this temple analogy that talks about purity? I'm sure there is. And you can look at it that way. But you can also look at it as a worth thing as something valuable that you take care of because it is valuable. And uh, so it should be that the system, that's what Paul's saying, you should be getting rid of this system. Shun the system where you use your body to get stuff or you use stuff to get people's bodies. It should be you're with a person you want and love. And what you do with that person should have nothing about, to be about getting stuff. If it does, it isn't love. You know, love, love. Love is a radical thing. Paul's saying stop, exploit, stop exploiting and being exploited. Your body is valuable. It's a temple. It's important. Demand a commitment. Be more than a means to someone's end. Now, I know I beat this drum a lot about transactions. I've, I know I've been kind of on that hobby horse for a while. But I'm not done yet. Love is not transactional. Transactions are selfish. They're about me getting for me the best that I can get for the lowest possible price. And commitment, that's the ultimate price. Because you're not, because you're not just giving yourself to one person, but you're giving up on all those other possibilities out there. If you're not making the commitment, it's not really loving. So treat your body like it's the most valuable thing. And don't sell it out willy-nilly. And you wouldn't let people use you if you really valued it and saw yourself that way. You would expect more and you would demand more and you would be more. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen.